The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. As you know, we've been going through what I call selected psalms. And uh, I'll be honest with you, the way I've been choosing these uh, is I got out my old, old Bible. And it's the one I've had for years and years and years. And I started just going through different areas that God used to speak to me over those years. And that's what I've been pulling out each week. And someone had said to me, well, are you going to preach on this psalm? Are you going to preach on that psalm? And yeah, you know, if if you have something that's dear to you, let me know. Not saying I'll preach on it, but I just might. So feel free. This is a very open series. And, uh, and I say that because, you know, we've gone through Psalm 1, Psalm 23, uh, 32, and now 34. In the last couple of Psalms, there is an overwhelming consistency of message that flows through it. And I think you'll see that again this morning. But if you're in Psalm 34, look with me at the first eight verses. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then skipping ahead to verses 19 to 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Now, out of all these collections in the book of Psalms, uh, 14 of these Psalms are introduced by words linked to David's life. And not always does this linking up give us an idea what it's about, but in this one particularly, it does. The, The Psalm was written at the same time David was pretending to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away. It's kind of a fascinating story if you have a chance to read 1 Samuel chapter 21. But I want you just to see verses 10 through 15 by introduction here. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And and the servant of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart, and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madman? that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, David was fleeing from his enemy, King Saul. And the circumstances seem to be so desperate that he runs to another enemy. 
And David must have felt extremely desperate because he goes into the area of the Philistines that was the home of Goliath, who he had killed years before. So he's fleeing from one enemy into the presence of another enemy. That's when you know things are tough. So but now, by now, he's afraid of Achish, that he pretends to be mad, a madman. And he's in the presence of this king, and he's scratching the doors, and he's scratching the posts, and he's drooling and foaming at the mouth. And, and this kind of cracks me up, because Achish looks at him, and at verse 15, he says, Do I lack madman that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? I mean, I got enough wackos, guys. I don't need another. Kind of makes you wonder who he surrounded himself with, or who was in this presence. But this is what David does. Now, most commentators agree that this must have been a very difficult and sad time in David's life because he failed to trust God to protect him from Saul and was relying on his own cunning, his own rationale, and his own decisions to get through the situation. Sound familiar? Nevertheless, David did finally cry out for help, and that's what Psalm 34 is all about. Now, in 1 Samuel, we're told that he fled to the cave at Adullam, and this may be where he wrote this psalm. But Psalm 34 is quoted in the New Testament several times, and it's alluded to uh, more than that. But verses 12 through 16 of Psalm 34, Peter picked up on when he was instructing the Peter people in 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. He said, For Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then again, verse 20 is quoted by John in John 19, 36, when he says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. So this psalm is divided into two parts. The first part is a testimony coupled with encouragement to praise God. And the second part is a set of wise observations based on the psalmist's experience. Now, Charles... Spurgeon says that the first 10 verses are a hymn, and the second 12 verses are a sermon. And isn't that interesting because of the way we pattern our services? The first part <clears throat> is worship. It's designed to get our minds in tune with God. It's designed for us to raise our hands and thank God for the mighty deeds he's done in preparation for the message. And that's why uh, if I can speak as a pastor now, it's important that you're here on time. Because this is the very essence of worship. And this is the very focal point that brings us to the throne. So let, let's look at this invitation to praise. The first half of the psalm has three parts. And the first of these is verses 1 through 3, which is a testimony by David of God's goodness. And begins with David himself praising God and then inviting others to join with him. So the person who has experienced God's mercy naturally looks to others to experience corporate worship together. Corporate worship is one of the natural instincts of the new life in Christ. 
And when you heard the testimony of these two folks, the joy of sharing what Christ has done. And when you and I come together to worship, that's really what we're doing. We're collectively lifting our voices in unison to praise the God who saved us and the the God who we'll be with forever. So he begins with Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. You notice that word, continually. This means that he will bless the Lord at good times as well as in times like 1 Samuel 21. Now, you and I find it easy to praise God in good times, and who wouldn't? But what about the times of difficult circumstances? Yet, David was prepared to praise the Lord even in the midst of danger. He may have acted like a fool at this point, but his heart was enough in tune to praise God. And we saw that last week in, in Psalm 32, when after David had confessed his sin in Psalm 51 and records it in Psalm 32, we had said that he had been hiding from God and once confessed he was hiding in God. And that's really what David is expressing here. But notice what he does here now. He calls himself the poor man. The second part of the Psalms first half, verses four through seven, contained David's own testimony. Now, here's the background of this testimony. First Samuel tells us that this was the lowest point in David's life thus far. He had just parted with his beloved friend, Jonathan. Jonathan had confirmed that his dad was out to kill him, and so he had to leave. Jonathan was not only his best friend, but his confidant. They were kindred spirits, and he had to leave him behind. And not only that, he was totally alone. He had no bodyguards. He had no weapons or armor. In fact, he had no food. And so the first verse of 1 Samuel 21 tells how he came to the priest at the temple of Nob in order to get food and some kind of protection. And Ahimelech, the chief priest, gave him consecrated bread And then gave him Goliath's sword. So understand the situation here. He's come in, and if you want to go back and read that chapter, you'll find out that when he got there, Ahimelech said, why are you by yourself? This doesn't make sense. There's something's not right here. You have no one with you, no protection. And so David immediately lied and said he was on a special special mission from the king. And so he gave him Goliath's sword the one that he had slew the, or taken the head off Goliath years before. So now he's got some armament and he's got some food. But you know, David can have the sword of Goliath in his arsenal, but he would have been much better equipped if he had had the faith that killed Goliath. You see, David had lost confidence in God's leading. Remember, he had been anointed by God, to be king. David's life was organized. It was set up. But yet in the midst of conflict, he turned to his own way of thinking and he started dealing with his problems based on his own understanding. And he really got away from what God was trying to do. So he went to God's house for comfort, but he was was detected at being wrong in his heart. And instead of confessing his lie to the prophet, He runs again, now having more faith in the sword than in God. 
So when David went to Gath, this is all he had. And when he escaped from Achish and hid in the cave of Adullam, he was utterly alone. It was only later that his brothers and his father's house heard where he was and came to him and became the nucleus of the 400 men that would be his, 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 this nucleus of his, of his army. So no wonder David describes himself as this poor man. He had nothing. He wasn't even sure he would escape alive, but he was very poor in spirit. So please don't miss this clear lesson here. David is God's anointed. His future is promised. Yet, at this time, he's running for his life. And I want you to realize something here. When you come to Christ in repentance and give your life to Christ, you are God's anointed. Do you realize that? Do you realize your future is mapped out? Do you realize that you are hid in Christ? Trust him. Trust him to lead you. And this is really what David is describing here in his own life. It's for all those who find themselves at the absolute low point in their life, which is where David was. Or anyone who finds themselves between a rock and a hard place. And in this case, David's rock was King Saul and his hard place was King Achish. It's for you when it seems like everything is against you. It's for anyone who has lost hope. It's for you when it seems that no matter what you do, you can't find the way out. And this is where the power of the Lord is. So if David were to be here this morning and you sat down with him face to face and you said, look, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's my problem. Here's what I can't get out of. Here's what I'm afraid. And you start laying it all out to him. You know what David would do? He would say to you what he said in verses four through seven. He would say, look, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Here's the key, folks. It is impossible. And let me just say that again. It is impossible for you to cry out to God in total repentance and not be heard by God. He hears your cry. You know why? Because that's what he said. And God doesn't lie. When you cry out to him, he hears. And David is saying, look, I sought him and he delivered me. And, and what a great testimony this is and what a helpful set of instructions. Notice the sequence in these verses. First, there's trouble. David speaks of this as fears in verse 4 and his troubles in verse 6. Second, there is prayer. He says, I sought the Lord, verse 4. I called on him, verse 6. 
Third, there's deliverance, the answer to his prayers. He says, I answered and, del- and he delivered me, verse 4. Again, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles, verse 6. And then fourth, his life became radiant with the joy of being in the care of such a good God. Verse, f- verse 5, these, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Remember, the Bible says, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I change not. So when David can make these statements of what God is doing in his life, you and I need to be sure that he will do it for you. It's proof positive. He's working in your heart the same as he worked in David. Different circumstances, different surroundings, different events, but the same work being done in your hearts. Now, I want to make sure you understand something, though, that's very important here. Because it also points to this at the end of this, of this psalm. David's circumstances did not change immediately. He is still a fugitive. He's still in danger. And for a time, he's still alone. But God did deliver him in God's time. And this is important to understand because the promise of prayer doesn't always mean God will change every difficult situation in your life but he will preserve you through it and accomplish his tasks as you're going through it. So if you're taking notes this morning, let me just give you a little thing to write down. God will not protect us from what he will perfect us through. God will not protect us from what he will perfect us through. Our outcome is far more important than our present comfort. Because he's working a far greater, far greater purpose in the hearts and lives of each one of us. And when you can rely on that, as David came to rely on, you can face any situation with confidence that he's working through you. Moreover, he he will do this even if you're unable to see what's going on. And I say this because of verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and deliver him. Now, what do you think of when you read this? I think of God's deliverance of the prophet Elijah and his servant recorded in 2 Kings chapter 6. If you recall, Elijah and his servant were in Dothan. And the king of Aram had sent his armies to surround the city. You see, he realized or found out that what was happening was God was giving, uh, uh, was giving Elisha heads up on what the king was doing. And so he was passing that on to the, the king of Israel, and they were able to outwit and stay one step ahead of the enemy. So Achish figured, if I can surround him and take him captive, he'll cut off the information stream to Israel and we'll be able to defeat them. So they've come in the night and they've surrounded the whole city. And the story tells us that when Elisha's servant went out in the morning to get water, 2 Kings 6, 15 says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Panic is set in. 
But then Elijah responds in verse 16 to 7. He goes, he said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What? Elijah, have you been outside? Come with me. Look, all around the city, the enemy, they're there. What are you looking at? And Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around. You know, this is my prayer when people are struggling. God, open their eyes. See the Lord. Your troubles may be awful. You may be surrounded in difficult things, but there is a far greater army around you. And this is what he was trying to see. He couldn't see it until God opened his eyes and there was this mass army. And this was David's situation in the cave of Adullam. Even though he could not see divine hosts, and it's your situation and mine as well. Since the text speaks universally when it says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Look at verse 6 again. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. When Christ is your savior, you have the creator of the universe protecting you. But I think sometimes we forget that, don't we? When things get difficult, sometimes our way of thinking just goes everywhere else but. But the deliverance is a very important theme here. Verse 4, he says, we are delivered from our fears. Verse 7, we are delivered from our enemies. And look at verses 17 and 19 from our, from our many troubles. He says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But it does not promise we will not have fears, enemies, and troubles. David was God's man, and he had them all. But it does promise deliverance for them and sometimes in them, by God's power. You know, sometimes God calms the storm and other times he lets the storm rage and calms your heart. And you may find yourself in one of these two places. So the psalmist is saying that on the basis of my testimony, try him. Believe God to do the same thing for you. Our problem is that we don't think about him enough. We fail to allow faith to do its assigned task. And how does God become a part of you? A part of your thinking and what you really are? It's by faith. And faith means believing God and acting on that belief. In other words, it's exactly what David is saying here. He wants us to act on what we know of God and his goodness. And for only then are we totally able to experience the true God in our heart and lives. David says, I found him to be good. And then he says, he delivered me from all my enemies 
and provides for me, and I want you to experience the same thing. So this brings us then to a very important topic, and that's the fear of the Lord. Verse 11, we begin the second half of the psalm. This, this half has uh, great biblical parallels in the wisdom psalms that begin Proverbs 1 through 9. In fact, Proverbs 9, 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Earlier in Psalm 34, 7, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So now he's going to teach us what true fear is. There are two parts to the last half of this psalm. Part one provides an instruction, verses 11 to 14. Part two is a summary of what has been stated early in verses 15 to 22. But look at uh, verses 11 through 14. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, most writers make a distinction between what they mean by fear and what we call reverence. And this is, this is very correct, of course. It is a reverential trust in the Lord. And in fact, the dictionary even alludes to this. Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary calls it awe, profound reverence, and especially for a supreme being. So we know it's a reverential trust in the Lord. But David takes it a step farther. And I think this is where we often drop the ball. David says he defines it not only by emotion or attitude, but by action. So here's my definition to fear. It is a reverential trust in God manifested through obedience. And Peter picks up this concept of Psalm 34 when he's writing about a moral life. In 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12, he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So David is saying that the fear of the Lord contains doing right by what he says. If you wonder why God seems so far away, just take stock of your life and how you're living. In other words, true fear involves obedience. And since the fear of the Lord is the enjoyment of the Lord, the way we enjoy the Lord as taste and see that he's good, it means to obey him. So one commentator explains it by saying, the good you enjoy, verse 12, goes hand in hand with the good you do, verse 14. So let's look at a summary of these contrasts here to make sure we have a good understanding here. The very last section of this psalm is a summary, and it's extending over four short stanzas, verses 15 through 22. These verses introduce a contrast not yet mentioned between those who are righteous and those who turn to Christ or turn to God, 
or those who turn away from him. It says, we are told that the eyes and the ears of the Lord are toward the righteous to, to see their distress and hear their cries, but the face of the Lord is against the evildoers. Psalm 34, 15 to 20. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the broken and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. So in verse 15, it says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the the righteous. You remember last week in Psalm 32, it talked about this. The very fact that he counseled us with his eyes upon us. Do you realize you are never out of the sight of God? Never out of the sight of God. So the earlier parts of this psalm are so well known that they tend to gloss over the second half of the psalm. But they are profound in two ways. Number one, They present a mature and very balanced view of life. They point to the deliverance God provides for those who fear him, but not overlooking the fact that in spite of God's favor, the righteous nevertheless do frequently suffer in life. David himself had trouble. And the psalm is a hymn of praise to God for delivering him out of trouble. So becoming a Christian does not mean a trouble-free life. Not by any stretch. One commentator put it this way, quote, The fear of the Lord is indeed the foundation of life, the key to joy in life and long and happy days. But it is not a guarantee that life will always be easy. It may mend the broken heart, but it does not prevent the heart from being broken. It may restore the spiritually crushed, but it does not crush the forces that create oppression. So deliverance is one thing. Exemption from trouble is another. Number two, they move beyond mere deliverance in life. They speak of life beyond the grave. And in this contest, context, it speaks of redemption and deliverance from God's final condemnation or judgment. Look at verses 21 and 22. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Here is an amazing passage of security for those who trust. For those who have placed their life in Christ, you will never be condemned. Your eternity is absolutely secure. Ephesians says that you have been sealed until the day of redemption. And you know, I say quite frequently, if you're not good enough to save yourself, you're sure not good enough to keep yourself saved. It's all of God's grace. 
It's all of God's mercy. And that's what David is saying at the end of this psalm. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. That's strong words. Because we're living in an ever-increasing society where Christians are being condemned. And you know, it's tempting to say, well, you'll get yours. But that's not the heart of Christ's mercy. We need to have such a heart for those who condemn us because they don't know any better. They don't know any better. But when God's people rise up and pray and call upon the name of God, great things are done. And that's what we need to do as a body and as Christians today. So this points us to the ultimate fulfillment of these promises in the gospel. Deliverance here is good. But what is essential is deliverance from eternal punishment due for our sins. And for that deliverance, we have to look to Christ. The first part of verse 22 says, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. How? By the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second half says, None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Why not? Because Jesus has taken that condemnation in your place and sealed you forever. So, if we could stop living for deliverance from this thing or that and start living in the eternal deliverance that's already ours in Christ, we would have a far better handle on life. We have been delivered. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I want you to have that deliverance too. But outside of Christ, you have no deliverance. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The Scripture tells us. He so loved the world. So loved the world. I mean, he did love the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now you and I could meditate on that all the days of our life and never get to the bottom of the depth of that love. He so loved you. What do you have for him? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Can he have your life? Totally surrendered? Can we take the words of David and know that when we come to him and cry out to him, he will deliver us? He's not going to give you a trouble-free life, folks. We live in a sin-cursed world. It's part of the cross we bear for being humans in the age of, of, of sin. But he will deliver you through it. He will cause you one day to mount up with wings as eagles to run and not be weary, and to walk and not faint. There is coming a day when we are totally free from all of it. But for now, all you and I can do is live through it by his strength. And that's why I say over and over and over again, you and I need to learn to trust the Spirit and let the Spirit live through us. He must increase, we must decrease. His spirit must take over. We must allow him to lead us. And that's where true deliverance comes from. 
It's not just saying I have this problem, poof, it's gone. Keep me in that problem and let's go. You know, I heard someone make a comment about the game last night. And I'm glad all you went to bed early so you could be here today. But there was a comment said, and, it, and if you didn't watch it, you know, it had to be an overtime win. But there was a comment said that they grew up in adversity. You don't grow by winning 56 to nothing. You grow by scratching and clawing and finding what you're made of to get to that point. And I'm telling you, the best thing that God can ever do for you and I is to let us live through adversity. Because only then can you and I learn what it means to trust him. Only then can you and I learn what it means to rely on him, to take his word, to bring it into our heart and life and say, God, I'm here. But if being here brings glory to you, I'm here. If this is my lot for now, then praise you, do your will, and I'll rejoice in what I'm about to see you do in my life. And not only that, I'll rejoice in what you're going to do in other people's life because of me. Because that's the way God works. We are now and ever will be until Christ comes back learning from the life of David, who had mega trials, made awful mistakes, but he was always a man after God's heart. None of us are perfect. We fail. We fall flat on our faces. We make dumb decisions. But in the end, when God is gracious enough to let us see that and draw us through it, we learn so much more about the grace and mercy of our Savior. As you leave this morning, I would ask you just to reflect as clearly and succinctly as you can on your own heart. Is he in control or is he not? Do I know him as my Savior or do I not? There's no reason to go on stumbling and wondering and putting it off because as we said last week, there's no guarantee of tomorrow. Father, we thank you once again for this great lesson that David has given us. As he cried out to you and you delivered him over and over and over again. And Lord, there are times we've seen your deliverance in our lives and then find ourselves right back in it again. But God, you so loved us that you gave and you have provided for us a strength and a truth to lead us into a wonderful life of joy and victory. I pray, Lord, that you would do a special work in the heart of all of us today. And that we would cast all our cares upon you because you care for us. And know with great confidence and security that you will do your will. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. God bless.